morning. How's everybody doing today? It's nice out again, finally. Don't know how long it's going to last, but let's enjoy it now. How many people here would recognize the name Iron Eyes Cody if I told you that? Anybody? How many people would recognize the commercial campaigns from the 1970s called Keep America Beautiful? A few more hands there. Iron Eyes Cody was the Native American gentleman that was in those commercials that they showed in a campaign where they showed him riding his horse and he was going along the beautiful road or beautiful countryside in America by the stream with the pure water and the beautiful mountains and the trees. But then he gets to the part where there's tennis shoes and rubber tires and a bunch of junk laying in the, in the, in the water and comes up to the top of the, the crest of the mount where he's at and he looks out and you can see the highway and you can see all the pollution coming up and all the stuff on there. And this was back in the 70s already. And he, they showed the, the, mo- the image that everybody remembers is him turning to the camera at the end and he's got that one single tear running down his face. Remember that now? Now you remember who he is? Okay. That has nothing to do with my sermon. (laughs) Except for the fact that in a 1988 issue of Guideposts, Cody related an old uh, Native American legend to the magazine that uh, speaks about temptation. And that's what I want to speak about this morning. Um, Many years ago, the Native American youths used to go into solitude to prepare for manhood. There's many other cultures, I'm sure, that we've heard of that that have these manhood rituals that they go in and they do certain tasks to prove that they were men, right? Um, One such youth hiked into the beautiful valley, tons of trees, beautiful area, and he was there fasting for about three days. Well, after he had been there for three days, he kind of looked up and, and noticed the mountains off in the distance, and there was one peak that really drew his attention. It was tall and jagged and had snow on the top, and he's like, you know what? That's going to be my proving ground. I'm going to, ta- I'm going to tackle that mountain. And he threw on his, his buffalo skin shirt and bundled himself up and started to hike up the, up the cliff there. And when he got to the top, he just stood and looked. Because I know, I know Mike can relate to this being on mountains. You, you get on the top of a mountain and you look around and you can see everything. I mean, you can see for miles. You don't even have to be that high up on there, but the higher you get, and the, the further you could see. And he was just amazed at everything he could see. Well, he kind of heard a noise next to him, <clears throat> and he looked down, and there was a rattlesnake sitting there. And the rattlesnake started to speak to him. And he says, I'm about to die. It's too cold for me up here, and I'm freezing. There's no food, and I'm starving to death. Put me into your shirt and take me down to the valley. No, said the youth. I have been forewarned. I know you're kind. You're a rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you'll bite me, and that bite will kill me. Not so, said the snake. I will treat you differently. If you do this for me, you'll be special. I won't harm you. The youth resisted for a while, but this was a very persuasive snake with beautiful markings. As we know, snakes can be very persuasive, can't they? At last, the youth tucked it under his shirt and carried it down to the valley. And when he got to the bottom, he took the snake out of his shirt and he set it in the grass. And as he turned to walk away, that snake coiled up and bit him in the leg. 
And the youth turned around and cried on him. He said, but you promised me. And the snake said, you knew, what I was, you knew what I was when you picked me up. And with that, the snake slithered away. How many times have we been in that same situation? Might not have been a snake, obviously, because I hope you don't come across a snake that can talk to you. We know we shouldn't give in. We know the nature of what it is we're getting into. But it looks so harmless. And after all, I mean, the snake promised he wasn't going to bite him. How much more proof do you need? Oftentimes, our thoughts can betray us that way, telling us that it's okay, that we won't be harmed by giving in to whatever it is we're being tempted by. And for the most part, the first time you give in, probably won't. That's why it's a temptation. You've been there before, possibly, or you do it the first time, and then the next time it's a little easier, and a little easier, and a little easier, because nothing's happened. There's no immediate repercussions, so we're like, well, maybe it's not such a big thing. Certain that had to be going through Adam and Eve's mind in the garden. God told them they were going to die. They ate the fruit. Did they die right away? That was the twist of the sophistry in the lie, right? God never told them they were going to die immediately. He just said you were going to die. But because there was no immediate repercussion, it doesn't seem like such a bad thing, does it? Therein lies the enticement of temptation. We sink deeper and deeper into it because nothing happened the first few times we did it. So if I do it one more time, what could possibly happen? I just lost my battery pack. There's a story of a father who told his son, son, I don't want you to go swimming in the canal. And his son said, okay, dad. But that evening he came home carrying a wet bathing suit. And the father said, where have you been? Well, I went swimming in the canal. Didn't I tell you not to go swimming in there? Yes, sir. Why did you do it? Well, dad, I'll tell you. I had my bathing suit with me. And I couldn't resist the temptation. Why did you take your bathing suit with you? Well, so I'd be prepared to swim in case I was tempted. <laughs> Once we're in the grip of temptation and have to give in, it seems to us that there's no way out. Sometimes we even go so far as this young man did in preparing for it whether it's subconsciously or not. I can think back, I'm sure other people can too, to to a time when you gave in to something you knew you shouldn't have, but you can also see the way that you paved to get there. But there is a way out. And Jesus provided it. Correct? Amen? He wasn't always tempted as we are, yet was without sin, like we read in the scripture reading. So we can come boldly before the throne of grace and ask for his help. And for a long time, this sat with me. I'm like, Jesus was tempted the same way I was? Really? So he was tempted to smoke cigarettes? Really? He was tempted to do this or that or overindulge in whatever happened to be there at the time? Really? I don't remember reading that in the Bible. 
But I assure you, he was. And I tell you, too, that he overcame it so that we may, too, have victory. Now, when you think about that, the thing that didn't click in my head at first is temptation is relative, right? Does that make sense? My temptation might not be your temptation, but it can still fall under the same category. The power to overcome it is universal, though. If we turn this morning to 1 John chapter 2, verse 16... We're going to look at three basic types of temptation that are in this world. That It's not directly called that, but pretty much can break down temptation into these three categories. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So when did Jesus face these things? Matthew, chapter 4, in the wilderness, right? Let's turn there and we're going to read that. Matthew, chapter 4. Yes, we're going to spend the, the remainder, bulk of remainder of our time here. And I'm going to read through it first, and then we'll, we'll proceed to break down the, the three sections here. And when Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay. Then the devil took him up, into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give His angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So if we turn back to the first part, and we look at, If you're the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Which of the three do you think that falls under? Lust of the flesh. He was appealing to his hunger. He was appealing to that fleshly desire to eat. He was trying to make him do something that he didn't need to do. He was trying to appeal to that part of, you know, he was hungry. I'm sure he was starving. He was there for 40 days. You know, here here you go. You're the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. You can do it. The flesh distracts us from what we need to focus on. He was trying to get Jesus to give in to something that was in direct opposition to God. So the flesh, the carnal, is in direct opposition to the spiritual. The story from today in the Word tells us that John Mason Brown was a drama critic and a speaker well known for his witty and informative lectures on theatrical topics. One of his first important appearances as a lecturer was at the 
Metropolitan Museum of Art. Brown was pleased, but he was also really nervous. And his nerves were not helped when he noticed that by the light of the slide projector, somebody was copying every move he made. After a time, he broke off his lecture and he announced with great dignity that if anybody was not enjoying his talk, that they could feel free to leave. Nobody did, and the mimicking continued. It was another 10 minutes before he realized it was his own shadow. Was his shadow real? Of course. Does a shadow have the power to control a person's um, actions? No. It can only mimic us. But in Brown's case, his shadow did take control momentarily. It allowed him to become so distracted by it that he completely forgot what he was supposed to be doing. He completely forgot what he was supposed to be about. And that's a pretty good description of the sin nature we carry within us as redeemed people. It can cause havoc even though it has been made powerless by our identification with Christ. And that's what Satan was trying to do here. He was trying to get his focus, Christ's focus, off of what he was supposed to be doing and putting it on himself. The second temptation, we go to verse 5, was, Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands you shall bear, he, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Which one are we talking about here? Pride. Pride of life. If you're the son of God, you can jump off of here. You know? We may not be faced with that same temptation, but, you know, as, as kids and teenagers, especially boys, you know how, how cool it is when your friends dare you to do something and you do it. Whether you fail at it or not, you're still like, ha I did it. <laughs> I took my bike off that jump. You wouldn't do it. You're proud. Benjamin Franklin once said, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, and it is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be too proud of my humility. Pride an ugly thing at times. It's really a real temptation for people. And, it, and it's such a broad topic, too. I mean, you look at the temptation is relative, right? Nine chances out of ten, well, let's, let's do 999,000 out of a million times. You're not going to be asked to jump off the top of a building. If you are, you need new friends. Okay? But there may be something else going on in your life where you could have maybe taken a back seat or a more humble approach to something, but your pride got the better of you and it ruined the situation. So, temptation's relative. Power to overcome is not. That's universal. So let's look at the last temptation. The devil took him up on an extremely high, exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. That one's pretty easy. There's only one left, right? The lust of the eyes. He showed him everything. Took him up there and said, I'll give all this to you if you fall down and worship me. 
First of all, who was he to tell the guy who created it that he was going to give it to him? It was already his. But that's not what Christ said. Christ didn't debate the devil in any part of this other than with Scripture. He didn't give him an inroad to argue about it. Well, you know, I think this. No, he said, God said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you worship. That's all he said. And then he said, get. Right? He met the temptation, and then he told Satan to get out of here. Satan does this to us too, doesn't he? He promises great things if we will simply follow him instead of God. A little more subtle than that, but, I mean, that's basically black and white what it is, right? There's two sides. I mean, there's God and Satan. The things he offers look appealing, like the serpent in Genesis, like the serpent in the tale that Iron Eyes Cody told. But they're not designed for our own good, are they? They're designed to only further Satan's cause, his cause against God. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care. Satan does not care about giving you anything that's going to better your life. He just wants to distract you from God because he knows what God has to offer you, which is eternal life through him. Amen? And when we think about all the things on this planet that are caused by Satan right now and the, the, the gift that we have waiting for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, it should be a no-brainer, right? But it's still tough. We still have struggles, and Christ knew that. I mean, he knew it, it's written in the Bible that we're going to have struggles while we're on this planet. It's going to happen. It's terrible. You know, we... we People lose jobs, things happen, loved ones die, whatever. You've got to realize, the one thing that's really, really drove that home to me is thinking about however much pain I'm in right now in this situation, how much more pain do you think God's in? If he is truly a God of love, how much more does it pain him to have to watch what's going on in this world to his children. You know? I mean, you think about it that way. He's a God of love. It has to be killing him to continue to watch this go on. But thank God he is so merciful that if it's my fault that I'm holding up him coming back, he's waiting. He's waiting for that decision to be made so that anybody that's willing to be in eternity with him can be there. So what defense do we have against this temptation? Well, we have the word of God. And we have to cling to Jesus. He overcame all of this stuff so that we, have, we too have the power to overcome it. We too can confidently say by the power of Jesus, your temptation has no power over me. Some people say that it's a sin to be tempted. Is it? No. 
The sin is when you give in, right? We should welcome temptation while we're here, actually. Sounds like a weird, weird phrase, doesn't it? You should welcome temptation and trials. Turn, if you would, for a moment to James chapter 1. And uh, I actually didn't, didn't have this verse in my sermon originally, but pastor stopped over last night and he asked me what I was speaking about and he gave me a couple of little nuggets. So this one's from him. James chapter 1. We're going to read verse 2 and 3. James chapter 1, verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So temptation is a good thing, isn't it? In a way... If we are tempted to stray from God, it's got to mean we're doing something right or it's not a temptation. Satan doesn't need to tempt people that aren't following God, does he? Because they're already doing what he wants them to do. They're not following God. So why would he waste their time with them? He's wasting his time with us because we're trying to follow God to the best of our ability. We're trying to help other people to know about God to the best of our ability. And he's going to attack that and attack that and attack that until the world is done. But thank God that Jesus overcame him in the wilderness. Amen? He overcame him so that we have the power to overcome him also. Again, like I said before, it's not a sin to be tempted. It is what we do when faced with temptation that will define where we are in our walk. And like I said earlier, we're not all going to be tempted in the same way because temptation is relative. But once we realize that temptation falls into one of the three categories that we talked about and truly understand how Christ overcame them, giving us the power to do so as well, we can have confidence in Christ that we may overcome whatever Satan throws at us. As we worship a God that will never give us more than we can handle. Right? That's why you see people with different struggles. But we're all different too. I mean, that's, that's the way he made us. It's the way he made us so that we can relate. And somebody that's got a harder struggle, can relate to someone else. We used the example in Sabbath school this morning. It's, it's, we're not going to always relate to the same people. You know, I'm not going to relate to the same people that Carol's going to relate to, that Dave's going to relate to. It's, and that's the beautiful thing about a church family, is that we have this wealth of different parts and different experiences and different trials that we've faced that we can help other people with. You know, because somebody that's never smoked, as an example, is not going to be able to go up to somebody who's struggling with that and help them through it. But, well, I should, they probably can, but 
it's going to mean a lot more when it's coming from someone who's been there and can say, you know what? I had the same problem. This is what helped with me. And that's what Christ is basically telling us, right? The temptation in the wilderness, when he finished up with the fasting, that's what his message was to us. Look it. I fasted for 40 days in the wilderness and met the temptations of Satan that he's going to try and throw on you. But if you cling to me, cling to me, we can make it through. But it's also great to know that even if we stumble, even if we trip up, fall into temptation, that we can come back to Christ. And we have a loving Savior that's going to bend down, he's going to dust us off, and he's going to help us back to our feet. As 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins and are faithful, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from a little bit of unrighteousness. It's not what it says. All unrighteousness. All. So even if you stumble today, remember that God's there to pick you back up. He's been through it. There are other people that you can network with that have been through it. I mean, you look at this church body, I guarantee you, whatever struggle you're going through, there's somebody that's sitting out here today that's gone through the same thing. Or they know somebody that has. And it's just continues to amaze me what a wonderful Savior that we serve. That he was tempted in all ways like we were, but gave us the way out. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a Lord and Savior that understands our trials and temptations. We thank you that you have overcome anything that the devil can throw at us. And we also want to thank you for the temptation, Lord. As strange as that sounds. But we know that Satan wouldn't be attacking us if we weren't trying to do what was right. And we know that it must pain you more than it pains us to see the things that are going on in this world. And we pray, Lord, that if it's us that needs to make the decision that we make it, if there's someone out there that needs to make a decision, you help them to cross our path, Lord. As we look forward to just going home and having the relief of spending eternity with you, we thank you for the blessings that you give us every day. We thank you for our church family that we can pull together, help each other in our struggles, that we have stories to share with each other, of how you've helped us to get through those struggles and that we can just build each other up and encourage each other, strengthen our walk with you. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.